Welcome to the Saturday Frights Podcast. I am the projectionist, your co-host for this radio program. Now, come join your host, Vic Sage, as we enter the vault to once again discuss retro horror films and television programs. <laughs> they have any idea the forces they are toying with? They seem concerned about a ghoul fever-infected plague rat. Wait until they see what they unleash if this ridiculous proposal passes to alter the date of Halloween. Simmer down, projectionist. It's not a done deal yet. Folks are wanting to make it a little easier on the kids and their families by moving the date to the last Saturday of the month. So you're all for the sundering of our world then, Victor. You think this proposal is a good idea? Hey, I never said that. Just telling you what I heard. I have to say, I didn't think you would react quite this way. And how am I supposed to react? Uh, do you know the purpose of Samhain? You're... All Hallows' Eve, do you have the slightest comprehension of what Halloween stands for? Yeah, nine billion dollars worth of profit for candy manufacturers. You almost hit me in the head with that cup! If it had, perhaps I could obtain satisfaction that some sense was knocked into that oversized turnip you call your head. No, you foolish boy. Samhain is when the veils between our worlds and others is at its thinnest. When in times past, wiser souls realized that dark things were slipping in and moving about, <laughs> doing harm. Why do you think the jack-o'-lantern is still used on Samhain, Serge? Hey, I get it, projectionist. Just try to calm down a little. You're acting like Blair from John Carpenter's The Thing. And I have to say, it's starting to freak me out a little. You'll be a lot more freaked out, boy. When the horned people are shredding the veil and turning people into sacks of... Look at the control panel, projectionist. The recording light is on. Looks like it's time for the new Saturday Frights podcast, huh? Friends, my co-host and myself were having a, uh, civilized discussion about some proposed changes to Halloween. Yeah, gonna have to get Rockford J to send in sanitation in here. Anyway, the topic for today was originally going to be a matinee episode. But to be honest here, Jack Pierce deserves a full episode. For those of you, dear listeners, who tune in to our radio broadcasts, you will no doubt have viewed the monster pictures from Universal Studios. Jack P. Pierce was responsible for many 
of the iconic looks for your favorite cinematic creatures of the night. When Pierce passed away back in 1968, he'd amassed a total of 172 makeup effect credits. With his last professional work being the makeup artist on the television series Mr. Ed. Hey, I like Mr. Ed, Projectionist. From working with the likes of Lon Chaney Sr. and his son, Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and Conrad Veidt, to putting makeup on a horse. I somehow doubt that Pyrrhus was applying makeup to the horse, my friend. Although, I believe he was responsible for attaching the monofilament to Mr. Ed's upper lip. Moving on, as my worked-up co-host has mentioned, this is the man that helped craft the lasting legacy of the Universal Monsters. Frankenstein's monster, the mummy, the Wolfman. Jack P. Pyrrhus was not responsible for the creature from the Black Lagoon, however, dear listeners. I was going to mention that, Projectionist. Jack Pierce really was a legendary makeup artist, listeners. Interestingly enough, that wasn't his career choice he originally set out to achieve. That was baseball. Born as Janus Picoulas on May 5th, 1889, in Valdezu, Greece, his family would immigrate to America around the early 1900s. Although, dear listeners, I will add that I've heard his family originated from Portohile in Greece. Accounts of Jack P. Pierce's birthplace differ at times. Well, they called Chicago home when the family immigrated, and as he would appear to have a talent as a baseball player, shortstop if you want to know, this being in the semi-pro leagues. He packed up and headed to Los Angeles for an attempt at the big leagues, which was sadly not to be. As the hopeful young man arrived and was informed that due to his size, which was 5 feet 5, he wasn't what professional baseball leagues were looking for. Jack P. Pierce was not ready to admit defeat, throwing in the towel and returning home to Chicago. Instead, the young man chose to become a movie theater projectionist. I recall this was around 1910. In addition, he would rise to theater manager and even meet the woman he would eventually marry, Blanche Craven. Projectionist, I've read that around that time is when he changed his name to Jack Pierce, an act that hurt and angered his family back in Chicago, apparently. Pierce managed to land jobs in the burgeoning industry itself. Would you believe that he performed as a stuntman? Furthermore, between 1915 until 1929, he racked up 12 roles in films. At the same time, he really made himself available to the studios, acting as assistant cameraman to assistant director. It was in 1925 that Pierce would get his first gig as a makeup effects artist. Although, to be fair, many of the films he did makeup on went uncredited. That first movie was The Wanderer, a film that featured Tyrone Power Sr. It was with 1927's The Monkey Talks that Pierce made his first step into cementing his legacy. A film, dear listeners, in which the character of Jacques Lanaire attempts to disguise himself as a talking chimpanzee to help save the circus he performs at. Exactly. You see, director Raoul Walsh, who had also helmed The Wanderer, wasn't happy with how the makeup effect was for Jacques. So, Jack Pierce, who was already known as a deft hand at makeup, stepped in and offered to fix the problem. 
and it not only pleased Walsh, but Carl Lemley, which, as you all probably know, was a co-founder and head of Universal Pictures at the time. That is how Jack Pierce found himself done mostly with acting and given a full-time job as a makeup artist at Universal. What was the first picture that Jack P. Pierce was tasked with as a full-time employee? None other than the 1928 masterpiece, The Man Who Laughs, starring Conrad Veidt. However, were you aware, dear listeners, that it was Lon Chaney who was to play the lead of Gwynplaine? I've heard that, my friend. I've also read that Chaney couldn't take the role as he was under contract from another studio at the time. They just couldn't reach a deal. If I'm right, I believe he was contracted to Metro-Golden-Mayer at that point. You are correct on this, Serge. Shockingly. Thanks. While Chaney would have obviously been amazing in the role, I'm going to agree with my co-host in that The Man Who Laughs is a masterpiece, and Conrad Veidt, who also was in W.F. Murnau's equally iconic 1920 film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, really delivers the goods in the role as Gwynplaine. It's hard to keep a dry eye when watching it. Anyway, Jack Pierce worked with Veidt to create a set of dentures that sort of pulled back on his lips to look like he had this monstrous grin. It's incredible looking, and I can recall a book of monster movies I had as a kid that featured a publicity still of Veidt with the prosthetic. It really stayed with me, and especially when I learned that this role helped to inspire DC Comics' The Joker. It wasn't until I was an adult, though, before I saw the silent movie for the first time. Paris continued working at Universal as a makeup artist and was rewarded by being made the head of the makeup department at Universal, where he and his assistants worked on pretty much every film released by Universal Pictures at the time, concentrating on hair and makeup, etc. It was in 1931, though, he was hired to work on the patriarch of the Universal Monsters, Dracula. Although it... What year was Dracula released, Victor? 1931. I I just said that. And what year was Lon Chaney Sr.'s The Hunchback of Notre Dame released to theaters? Um... Sorry, I don't know that off the top of my head, Projectionist. 1923, you simpleton. Would not Quasimoto be the paterfamilias of the Universal Monsters? Or what of Cheney's 1925 take on the Phantom of the Opera? Hmm. Yeah, I guess the Phantom would be the first Universal Monster. But I don't see Quasimodo as a monster. A tragic figure, most definitely. And I see why he's often included in merchandising for Universal Monsters. Thanks to Cheney's amazing makeup effects. I feel the same way about including the Metaluna Mutant from This Island Earth in the Pantheon of the Monsters. I know you disagree with me on my view of this. As does any sane person. We can talk about this after the show. Jack Pierce was hired to handle the makeup on Dracula, although Bella Lugosi let the man know he didn't need assistance in applying his makeup. After all, he did absolutely kill it in the stage version of Dracula, and, like most stage actors of the day, was used to taking care of all of that himself. Having said that, though, Pierce did come up with the colored makeup for Lugosi to apply on himself, as well as handling the makeup on the other actors. In fact, Lugosi once commented that he felt the amount of makeup and prosthetics he wore as Igor in 1939's Son of Frankenstein was Pierce's way of getting even with the actor. Jack P. Pierce was quite known in Hollywood for his exacting demeanor in regards to his profession, dear listeners. 
Some might say he was a bit of a tyrant, my friend. I can't speak on that for sure, but at least we know that above all, he was a professional. His driving desire was to perfect his art. The following year found Pyrrhus working on what might be his greatest makeup effects creation, Frankenstein's Monster. Jack was 42 years old at the time. Karloff was a year older than Pyrrhus. It's weird to think these two men really hit their stride by the time they were almost middle age. It's been said that both Karloff and Pyrrhus, as well as director James Well, were responsible for shaping that iconic image of Frankenstein's monster. Although, I think it's safe to say that the lion's share of praise for the design rests firmly on Jack's shoulders. It's been said that it took Pyrrhus six months to research the effects, and how he might transform Karloff into a walking corpse, whose mother was electricity and his father a scientist driven to madness by the desire to create life. Pyrrhus was once quoted about the design, saying, quote, There are six ways a surgeon can cut the skull, and I figured Dr. Frankenstein, who was not a practicing surgeon, would take the easiest. That is, he would cut the top of the skull off straight across like a pot lid, hinge it, pop the brain in, and clamp it tight. That's the reason I decided to make the monster's head square and flat like a box, and dig that big scar across his forehead and have two metal clamps hold it together. The two metal studs that stick out the sides of the neck are inlets for electricity, plugs. Don't forget, the monster is an electrical gadget, and lightning is his life force. End quote. As a point of fact, Victor, Frankenstein is not a doctor. He quit medical school, as they had nothing else to teach him. Karloff deserves credit as well. For one thing, he removed a dental plate to help with one side of his face to look sunken. To say nothing of sitting up for up to six hours in the makeup chair. Putty applied to his upper eyelids in an attempt to make the eyes appear less than fully aware. There was, in addition, the skull piece, that flat-topped headpiece that was attached to a cotton and collodion concoction that made up the monster's forehead. That scar, and who can forget the electrodes attached to the neck of Victor Frankenstein's creation? Boris Karloff and Jack P. Pierce would work at the studio at night after most everyone had gone home. In an effort to keep the design a secret, it has been rumored. But more likely, so they would not be disturbed. In a bizarre way, the two were being just as secretive as Victor Frankenstein and his assistant, Fritz. Actually, projectionist, I think it might be pronounced Frankenstein. <laughs> what? Hey, hey, simmer down. Learn to take a joke. I've read that it was Jack Pierce that asked Karloff to remove his dental bridge, and that it was so exhausting to remove the makeup that sometimes Karloff would just go home and sleep in it, with Pierce working it back into shape the next day. Just goes to show you how dedicated these two men were to making the Frankenstein's monster into something truly original and memorable. Actually, Karloff mentioned receiving scars from the spirit gum used to keep the electrodes on his neck so he definitely hurt for his art. Obviously, we all know how well 1931's Frankenstein did for not just Universal, but for the career of Karloff and James Well. While the effects were praised in many reviews of the movie, it wasn't common knowledge that Pyrrhus was the man responsible for the design. 
Jack Pyrrhus and Boris Karloff would work together again, just a mere year later, and create another iconic member of the Universal Monster Pantheon. I'm of course talking about 1932's The Mummy. Before that, however, Pyrrhus and Lugosi worked together on 1932's adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's The Murders in the Rue Morgue, one in which Lugosi would be sporting a pretty memorable near-unibrow. But for my money, the best Lugosi-Pyrrhus team-up before 1939's Son of Frankenstein is 1932's White Zombie. Yes, with his tapered widow's peak, upraised eyebrows, curved beard strands, in conjunction with that devilish grin that Belly Lugosi could accomplish. Jack P. Pierce's makeup and the actor's performance made the character of Murder La Grande a memorable one. Most definitely. Enough at least to help Rob Zombie decide to name his band after the movie. Listeners, White Zombie, while definitely a classic, is the first feature-length horror film to feature zombies. But if you've not had the pleasure of seeing the film for yourself, these are the Haitian variety of zombies, not the flesh eaters that George A. Romero would help make popular with 1968's Night of the Living Dead. Interestingly enough, White Zombie was an independent film, which means that Halperin Productions, formed by director Victor Halperin and his brother Edward, were able to convince Universal Studios to allow Jack Pierce to work his magic on Lugosi for them. It bears mentioning that Jack P. Pierce never had a contract with Universal Pictures. When he caught the eye of Carl Lamely, I suppose it was something of a gentleman's agreement. You might be right, projectionist. And not to jump too far ahead, this is something that would greatly affect Pyrrhus in later years. 1932 was definitely a busy year for Jack, as he worked with Karloff once again, as well as James Well that year, with The Old Dark House, providing the memorable disfigurement makeup for Karloff's character of Morgan. But he really outdid himself with his next collaboration with Karloff that year, providing the makeup for The Mummy. Although, it sounds like Karloff had even more hardship with Pierce's artistic vision with this film. So much so, that when he was fully in The Mummy outfit, with bandages that were made to look aged by way of acid and drying them out in an oven, Karloff had to be wheeled around on set in a chair to avoid damaging the effect. In addition, Pierce added some clay to the bandages, which, when ground up, it looked like dirt. Since the mummy was ancient, when he moves on screen, you can see dirt particles falling from the bandages. It's really incredible, to say the least. Recall, dear listeners, that Boris Karloff also portrayed Ardath Bay, the mummy's more human-like guys. Jack P. Pierce aged Boris Karloff by way of drying collodion and cotton, heating it up, causing it to wrinkle upon the actor's face. Sadly, Pierce was uncredited once again for all of his hard work and design on The Mummy. That is where you are very mistaken, Victor. Jack P. Pierce was honored with a Filmograph Award for his work, given the trophy by Boris Karloff himself. Here, I have a copy of that trade paper. Seriously? Here, the dear listeners will surely appreciate it if you read this section here. 
Holy cow, projectionist! This, this is amazing! Friends, from the Hollywood Filmograph, dated Saturday, January 14th, 1933, a headline reads, Jack Pierce wins the 1932 Makeup Contest. Karloff Makeup in the Mummy gains Filmograph Trophy and Award. Jack Pierce, Universal Makeup Chief, wins the Filmograph Award for having created the most outstanding makeup in 1932. The masterpiece of facial adornment that won him this distinction was that of the mummy in The Mummy, directed by Karl Frund upon the person of Boris Karloff. During the elimination, over 100 makeups were considered by the committee of judges. Many marvelously effective character studies were submitted, but the judges contended that merely elaborate makeups did not necessarily indicate exceeding cleverness. A makeup must primarily express a character as well as enable an actor to maintain his personality in delineating that character. Grotesqueness that held the actor expressionless may have been artistic, but not outstanding. Honorable mention goes to Wally Westmore of Paramount for the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde makeup worn by Frederick March and Cecil Holland, MGM makeup head for his work in aging Norma Shearer in Strange Interlude. End quote. How did you manage to obtain this, man? I bought it when it was published, of course. Jack P. Pierce would work on only one notable Universal Monster picture in 1933. Once more, for director James Ware with The Invisible Man. Of course, Pierce was purely in a makeup role taking care of hair and wigs and so on. In 1934, Jack would team up with both Lugosi and Karloff in the exceptional and pretty disturbing film The Black Cat. Sort of based on the story by Edgar Allan Poe, 1935 saw Pierce tackling another James Well-directed movie, which also allowed him to work his genius on both Boris Karloff as well as Elsa Lanchester in The Bride of Frankenstein. Were you aware, Sage, that director James Well was quite opposed to the idea of a sequel to his hit 1931 picture? I remember hearing that, Projectionist. Didn't the studio even start to make a sequel without Will's involvement? That is correct. Although only going so far as to attempt to produce a screenplay. A few examples included the Frankenstein's monster surviving the burning windmill, much as in Bride of Frankenstein. The monster would become educated and use his creator's research to try and create life of his own. A mate, I suppose. Another idea the studio had was to have Victor turn his research towards a weapon of mass destruction. A death ray in this case. Well, while I admit I find the first idea you mentioned intriguing, I'm glad they didn't go with the second one at least. Thankfully, Wells did come back after four years and deliver what many fans consider an even better film than 1931's Frankenstein. Pierce managed to work on his design of Frankenstein's monster for this movie. The reason being, the poor monster did get burned in the windmill, so quite a bit of his hair has been burned off, especially around the front of his forehead, in addition to there being burned patches of skin on the monster's face. Elsa Lanchester's look was patterned after Nefertiti, at least in the case of her famous hairdo, which was the actress's real hair. Pierce had a wired cage placed on her head. Then he and his assistants brushed Lanchester's hair back over it, with the added coloring of the lightning bolt effect, of course. 
And I've read that Lanchester wasn't quite so happy about being wrapped up in cloth bandages, so tight she had to be carried around and was able to eat by way of a straw. For a character that appears on screen for less than five minutes, the Bride of Frankenstein is an incredibly memorable character. I totally agree with you, my friend. In 1935, Pierce would work on two more fantastic films. First up is The Werewolf of London, starring Henry Hall. There are a lot of stories about the makeup applied to Hall's character, Dr. Wilfred Glendon. I've read that Hull was totally against the idea of his face being unrecognizable in makeup after his transformation. I've even read that the studio was worried that folks might be offended by the more bestial makeup that Pyrrhus had originally planned. One that has been said to pretty much be what Lon Chaney Jr. would wear in 1941's The Wolfman. Dear listeners, I have heard said the reason Hull wanted to be more recognizable in his lycanthrope form was that his fellow actors would not be able to recognize him otherwise, thereby delivering a lesser performance. While I most definitely favor the makeup of 1941's The Wolfman, and I do think it's a better film, The Werewolf of London is still a solid movie, and I dig Pierce's design for Hall. The other 1935 picture that Pierce worked on that deserves to be praised is The Raven, another film that is sort of based on the work of Edgar Allan Poe. This Lou Landers-directed film teamed up Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, with the latter definitely having the more extensive makeup effect courtesy of Pierce. Boris plays an escaped murderer on the run from the law, who receives a new face, just not the one he expected when Lugosi's surgeon character horribly disfigures him, promising to repair the damage if he will help the love-spurned man exact his revenge. Pyrrhus wasn't without work during this time, going on to work on 1936's Dracula's Daughter, 1939's Son of Frankenstein, which the legendary makeup effects artist was able to transform Lugosi into the maniacally evil Igor, who survived a hanging but is forced to live with a broken neck, thanks to a prosthetic that displays a bone jutting out painfully from the side of the actor's neck. Plus, there's a nasty set of dentures that Lugosi wears, featuring blackened and broken teeth, and the actor seems to show it off with a great deal of pride. Jack Pierce also worked on 1939's The Tower of London, with Karloff again, as well as Son of Frankenstein's Basil Rathbone. In 1940, Pierce worked on Black Friday, a film that featured both Karloff and Lugosi, and I swear that Karloff is made up to look like Jack Pierce in that film. He sports a similar-looking mustache, and while not wearing glasses like Jack did, he also has a white surgeon's smock that Pierce frequently wore, in addition to his slicked-back hair. Also in 1940 was The Mummy's Hand, the first of four films featuring Karis the Mummy, played by Tom Tyler in this film, but who would be played by Lon Chaney Jr. in the three sequels. 1941 saw Jack Pierce working with Lon Chaney Jr. on both The Man-Made Monster, which is a charming B-picture, but more importantly that year was The Wolfman, helping to cement the legacy of Chaney in the pantheon of the Universal Monsters, as well as providing Jack Pierce the opportunity to use the werewolf makeup he had envisioned six years previous on The Werewolf of London. Yes, Lon Chaney Jr.'s role as the likable but doomed Lawrence Talbot was one for the ages. So much so that the actor would claim the wolfman was his baby. 
He was loyal to the character, playing both Talbot and the Wolfman in 1943's Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, 1944's House of Frankenstein, 1945's House of Dracula, and in 1948's horror comedy, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Which Lon was not a fan of, as I've read. He didn't take too kindly to the Universal Monsters being used as jokes. Cheney and Pierce were said to not have exactly gotten along. I've read that the actor felt that the makeup effects maestro was taking far too long to apply the makeup. Five to six hours, it's been said. Which required Pierce to glue yak hair to the actor's face. Then, using a curling iron, he would singe it. And if the rumors are to be believed, there were times when Jack would singe Cheney's face in the process. Jack was dedicated to the out-of-kit approach to creating his makeup effects, even when the industry had started to lean towards latex appliances. Masks, if you want to get down to it. Pierce did use a pre-made nose for Cheney as the Wolfman, in an effort to cut down the time and amount of work it would have required to create every single day. Personally, I feel that Pierce's work on the Wolfman is his greatest, but I say that as the Wolfman is my favorite of the Universal Monsters. Jack Pierce's dedication to the out-of-kit technique would sort of be his downfall. Even though he began to use a few examples of latex, like with Lon Chaney Jr. in the Mummy sequels, starting with 1942's The Mummy's Tomb, where the facial makeup was mostly just a mask attached by spirit gum. Although, I believe that his work on the 1943 remake of The Phantom of the Opera with Claude Rains was more kit than pre-made appliances. Sadly, the truth of the matter is that Pierce's dedication to his art and to Universal Pictures came to an end in 1946. The 57-year-old artist was replaced as head of the makeup department after Universal and International Pictures had a merger. Jack was replaced by Bud Westmore, who was the youngest brother of six who had made a name for themselves in Hollywood as makeup artists to various studios and stars. It didn't help matters that Jack Pierce hadn't signed a contract with the studio. His intentions were the best, of course, but he didn't have any protection when the studio decided to go with the younger Westmore. Pierce continued to work off and on in the industry in B-pictures and on television. Like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, his last work was on Mr. Ed, a role given to him by director and producer Arthur Lupin, who Pierce had worked with at Universal years earlier. Pierce passed away in 1968, some say nearly penniless. But obviously, his work on over 172 movies and TV shows stands as his legacy, as does the Universal Monster Pantheon that he had a hand in helping to create. The popularity of those characters continues to grow, with Universal Studios featuring a house this year at their Halloween Horror Nights events dedicated to the monsters, which is something they've done in the past, too. The likes of Tom Savini, Rick Baker, Greg Nicotero, and many more have cited Pierce's work as inspirations for them getting into the film industry. Projectionist, I think we've done a decent overview on the legacy of Jack Pierce. Do you have anything to add? Only that I am grateful that we can bask in the legacy of Jack P. Pierce any time we please. I realize that most of you dear listeners do not have access to original prints of the films, but I know that many of them that the artist worked on are available for your viewing pleasure on your DVDs and Blu-rays. 
Well said, Projectionist. And friends, I think that brings us to the end of this Saturday Frights podcast. Before we go, I not only want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to the show, but to apologize about the lateness of this episode. This should have been out about a week ago. Work outside of the vault at this time of year is incredibly hectic, and I often find it too difficult to meet up with the projectionist and record. Having said that, a matinee episode will be up for your listening pleasure within the week. The reason being that at the time of our recording this episode, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark will be premiering this Friday. I've already obtained tickets for the movie, and since it has connections with retro horror by way of the original novels by Alvin Schwartz with those stunning pieces of artwork by Stephen Gamel, I felt it was a worthy subject for the next matinee podcast. Now, there are some big changes coming up for not just the Saturday Frights podcast, but for all the shows I have a hand in producing. Diary of an Arcade Employee, Retro Radio Memories, the Pop Culture Retrorama Podcast, the Projectionist Sinister Tales of Terror, and hopefully soon, the TuneIn Podcast. The reason being is that for the last 10 years, I have graciously been given a space on the Retroist. I've never had to pay a dime in hosting fees for any of the shows or my work. If you are a frequent visitor to the Retroist, you know that he has decided to do something different with the site, to reinvent it, to make it more personal, like it was when he started it over a decade ago. Mainly, the Retroist will feature articles written by the Retroist and only him, although there might be a guest article now and again as I understand it. Now, the Retroist is going to help me start up my own website, to host the podcasts I produce, and and most probably I'll write articles there too. And I'll probably have past Retroist authors join me there if they so wish. I've even been contacted from friends like Earl Green and IC Robots to host the shows on their own networks. I mention all of this because there may come a point in the next couple of weeks that while new shows are being produced and released, they might not be showing up on iTunes and so on. I'll be sure to provide clear links to the Internet Archive when this takes effect. So just make sure that you're following me on Facebook and Twitter. The music you heard at the beginning and ending of our podcast was provided by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you may contact him at peachy at retroist.com. My co-host, The Projectionist, has his own Facebook page, Projectionist Haunted Drive-In. He shares old movie posters and newspaper advertisements throughout the week. It's always neat to see what vintage thing he can dig up to share. As for myself, you can still find me posting a couple times a day on not just the Saturday Frights page, but the Diary of an Arcade Employee Facebook page too. I even managed to find time to share some things on the Retroist Clubhouse on Facebook now and again. Saturday Frights has an Instagram account, by the way. And if you want to check it out, you can find it. It's simply Saturday underscore Frights. If you'd like to contact me personally with suggestions for future episodes, you can reach me at vicsage at retroist.com. Naturally, we owe a great deal of gratitude to the Retroist himself, not just for hosting the podcast, but for allowing us for nearly 10 years share our love of all things retro. If you want to read the best collection of retro-related articles and listen to some of the best retro-related podcasts, hop on over to theretroist.com. If you like the show, consider subscribing and giving us a rating over on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify to help spread the word. Now, let's listen to a clip from the subject of our next matinee show. This town has told stories about me. 
horrible stories. But they don't realize I have scary stories of my own. Cerebellos. Tell me a story. This has been a Retroist production. Sleep well and goodbye.